This morning, we find ourselves jumping right back into the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And because not all of you were with us last Sunday, I want to do two things here from the beginning. I want to reread the first nine verses of John chapter 3, and then I want to very quickly recap the necessary details of where we're at in this conversation, just so you're not lost before we get to verse 10. So John chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, we'll read the first nine verses. John tells us that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus answered and said to Jesus, how can these things be? John sets the scene for us in the first two verses by saying, that after Jesus had finished cleansing the temple and spent a week or so during the Feast of Passover teaching the people and performing these signs or these miracles, that a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, came to Jesus by night. That is the context for this conversation. And because of the nature of what ensues, John, he wants us right from the beginning to know just a little bit about this man, Nicodemus. We're told first that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were a political party there in Israel, as well as a ruler of the Jews, which would have made him likely a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have held to a very strict, literal reading, interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures. He would have been a fundamentalist. So he would have also believed that God's people were required to rigorously obey every nuance of the Mosaic law, as well as their man-made traditions. You would say that Nicodemus was a staunchly and devoutly religious man. As a member of the Sanhedrin, there is no question that Nicodemus would have also been very politically connected, would have been profoundly influential. Nicodemus, though we're not told, we can assume, grew up in a noble Jewish home. He would have been very wealthy educated in both the Jewish law as well as Greek culture. For context, Nicodemus would have been one of the 70 most powerful men in all of Israel. Aside from these things, we can also surmise from his decision to come and speak with Jesus that Nicodemus was also deeply inquisitive, that he was genuinely interested in weighty spiritual matters. Why else would he come to meet with Jesus? You see, over the past week, Nicodemus' interest in Jesus, it increased. 
the more he was exposed to the man and the ministry, the more intrigued Nicodemus became. At some point, we don't know when, but something so stirred in the depths of Nicodemus' soul that he had to come and personally meet with Jesus. Nicodemus, we're told, comes to Jesus by night. And I don't think it's because he was ashamed to meet with Jesus. I think it was just probably the only time he could have a private conversation with him. And we're told that he greets Jesus by saying, we know, and that's not an accident. You see, the sad thing is that while Nicodemus was not the only member of the ruling establishment that saw Jesus as both a rabbi anointed and sent from God, it was, though, only Nicodemus who allowed his curiosity to lead him to manifest into an encounter with Christ. It's evident from the text that the topic that Nicodemus came to discuss with Jesus centered upon the kingdom of God, and more specifically, how Nicodemus was going to experience or see the kingdom of God. And while the Jews were looking for a physical kingdom, the conventional wisdom of the day is that they were looking for a kingdom whereby the Messiah would come and rule and reign the world from Jerusalem, which, by the way, was not a, a, an, an incorrect understanding, which is incomplete. Today, we, with the luxury of hindsight being 2020, we see that the kingdom of God as a concept was much more than just a physical kingdom. It was to be a spiritual kingdom whereby Jesus would first rule over the hearts of man through the indwelling of his spirit. You would say that Jesus came to make citizens of the kingdom before the kingdom came. This is why in verse 3, Jesus begins this conversation by immediately explaining to Nicodemus that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is crystal clear that it is only through the rebirth of man, a birth literally originating from a higher place, that man will be imparted the power to experience the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. Not only does this unique phrase, born again, imply a work done on your behalf as neither your conception nor your birth demands your particular involvement, but the idea of being born again, it, it intimates a fundamental change or transformation of self. This was such a radical, revolutionary concept for Nicodemus that Jesus has to continue by explaining that this new birth doesn't occur in the flesh of man, but instead in his spirit. In verse 6, Jesus adds, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's telling Nicodemus, that the transformation of, of man, essential to enter the kingdom of God, it takes place not in man's flesh, the outward man, what man does, or his religious works, but instead it takes place inside of man, internally, in his spirit. New birth and new life, real change occurs automatically, naturally, in a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, Jesus again reiterates this point to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. He repeats himself. You see, Jesus couldn't have been more emphatic that being born again is absolutely essential for any person, then or today, to experience the kingdom of God. Aside from this 
concept hitting him. How shocking it must have been for a pious man, a religious man like Nicodemus, whose entire worldview was based on his strict adherence, his strict religious performance, to hear Jesus tell him, to hear Jesus explain to him what he had to become, not do, to enter the kingdom of God. It was something he had to be. For a new birth, being born again, is something you must experience through a work of God. This new birth, it's something that happens to you. It's not something you can do or manufacture. It's a work of God performed on your behalf through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. This entire exchange, where we are in the conversation, has not only left Nicodemus marveling, but he's left wondering, how can these things be? Keep in mind, while in verse 14, Jesus will specifically tackle this question by taking Nicodemus back to the Old Testament, back to Numbers chapter 21, Jesus will first, though, issue a challenge to this religious scholar in four of what I think to be the most radical verses in maybe the entire New Testament. Let's dive in. John 3, beginning with verse 10. The middle of this conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus, he says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, Nicodemus, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Pretty gnarly statements by Jesus here. Now before Jesus answers Nicodemus's inquiry, he begins here with a rhetorical question of his own. Nicodemus, as Jesus is speaking, you wonder how these things can be. But let me ask, aren't you the teacher of Israel? Shouldn't such an educated, a learned man as yourself know how these things could be? Like, shouldn't an expert, Jesus is asking, in the scriptures already know the answer to the question? how these things could be, I shouldn't, Nicodemus, have to explain these things to you. This is what Jesus is saying. And kind of after this rhetorical slash rebuke of Nicodemus, Jesus then for a third time uses this phrase, most assuredly, which we noted last Sunday, was a duplicate word in the Greek, reaffirming what he's just said. It's akin to saying, amen and amen, verily, verily. In effect, what Jesus is doing is he asks a rhetorical question that aims to rebuke Nicodemus as a religious leader, and then he doubles down on the rebuke. Most assuredly, again, I will say to you. You see, there was simply no excuse for Nicodemus, a religious expert who has the entire Old Testament memorized, okay? He knows the Scriptures inside and outside. He just didn't know the God of the Scriptures. He knew it all here. He just didn't know it here. But intellectually, he should have been connecting the dots, and he wasn't. There was no excuse for him not to know 
for him to ask a question with such an obvious answer. And so we have to kind of ask, consider for a minute, why was Nicodemus so ignorant? Jesus answers his own question. He says, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Now, right from the bat, you can't help but see a parallel in this statement to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, right? When we're told that God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. You see, Jesus' use here of the pronouns we and are not only serve to emphasize the triune nature of God, but they're specifically being used to demonstrate Jesus' deity. Don't forget Nicodemus, his initial confession in John 3 verse 2 was what? It was that Jesus was a teacher, a rabbi, come from God, and that God was with him. But in order for Nicodemus to now understand the much larger point he's about to, be, about to make, Nicodemus now needs to see Jesus for who he really was. He wasn't with God. He wasn't sent just from God. Jesus was God. This is the point Jesus is trying to get him to see. And what point, why, was Jesus' deity such an essential thing that Nicodemus needed to be aware of? Well, here's his point. The point is that the Hebrew people had not received the witness of God. It's as though Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you want to know why? You don't have the answer to this question. How can these things be? Which you should know because you're a student of Scripture. Well, this is why you don't know the answer to the question. Because you, along with the nation of Israel in times past, have rejected the witness of myself, of God, of us, of our witness. We have spoken, we have testified, but you haven't received it. And so now here you're still ignorant. Now, I don't, <laughs> I don't have time to fully unpack that entire idea, other than to say that no concept in the New Testament doesn't first originate in the Old Testament. Like everything you find in the New Testament finds its origins in the Old Testament, contrary to what Andy Stanley wants to tell you. The sin nature of man, the inability of man to be righteous through his works, the ineffectiveness of the, of the sacrificial system, the necessity of faith, in a Savior, for salvation, God's grace, even the promise of new birth occurring through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all of these things were explained in the Old Testament, which is why Nicodemus should have known them if he was accepting the witness of God. I'll, I'll just give you one example of something he should have known as it pertains to this entire conversation. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God says this, quote, I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart, uh, I will take the stone, let me repeat that. 
Reading comprehension. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land and you will be my people and I will be your God. Nicodemus is wanting to know, how does this new birth happen? And it's like, you have it memorized. God will do something in you. He will take out a heart of, and he'll put in his spirit. Come on, Nicodemus. You should be knowing these things, but you've rejected the witness. Jesus here, he testifies that the reason that Nicodemus was ignorant concerning these elementary spiritual principles was because he had not received the witness of God in his previous dealings with Israel. And this Greek word received, it means to, to, to lay hold of, to take in the hand. Jesus. Nothing he had said was new. It's his point. But the truth is, is Nicodemus was confused because he had simply refused to accept it. And then Jesus makes another incredibly mind-blowing statement. He says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. (laughs) Now, Jesus here is standing in front of Nicodemus. Literally physically. And he says here that the son of man, while standing in front of Nicodemus, was also in heaven. And Jesus is using here a present participle, articulating the fact that he was presently in both places at once. (laughs) Like you can't escape the implications of what he's saying here. Like Jesus is clear as God, he came down from heaven. But, he says, was, he was still presently in heaven. Now, I'm not going to try to unpack how that is. Like, that is an absolute mystery, which is okay, because that means that there's not, like, if I could understand everything there were about God, A, that would make me God, and that's terrible, and B, that would, that would make me really smart, which I'm not. Um, I'm okay with the fact that there are certain mysteries about God. My pea brain can't wrap itself around. Jesus saying, hey, I was sent from heaven. I'm standing in, but I'm still in heaven. Mind meld, I don't know. Except for the implications. Like it's a mystery, but never forget. And I think it's important that while Jesus was fully man, articulated in this phrase, the son of man, he was fully man. Jesus always remained fully God, which is where we get this phrase, the son of God. You see, the triunity within the Godhead was not broken through the incarnation of Jesus. Still three persons, one God. You see, until a singular moment on the cross, when Jesus, who knew no sin, became our sin, became sin for us, and when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus always maintained and enjoyed a particular communion and connectedness with the Godhead. We'll find this over and over over again in in John's gospel. Jesus reaffirming, he and the Father are one, but they were in two separate places. The Holy Spirit descended as a dove when Jesus was baptized. Was the Holy Spirit limited to the dove? No, not at all. So there is a mystery here, but there's this triunity that exists that still remained intact. Now, once again, in light of a statement like this, kind of a side note, I hope you do know that there are only two logical conclusions you can reach about Jesus. 
Okay, in light of the fact that Jesus would make such a statement, there's only one of two options. You either reach the conclusion that Jesus was a looney tune. Because, like, who would say something like that? He's either a looney tune, or you have to conclude he's who he claimed to be. He's either God, or he's a lunatic to make such a statement. Well, now, verse 14, Jesus will answer the question, how can these things be? We read Jesus saying, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus is still stuck on the how behind this new birth. So in order to answer this how question, Jesus takes him back to a familiar story in the Old Testament recorded for us in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4. 4 through 9. Now, you might have skipped this because you get to numbers as you're reading through the Bible, and there's a lot of names. And you might have concluded, that's all of this. I'm moving to the next book. And would have missed this little nugget, this little story tucked in the middle of numbers that's fascinating. A little context. The Israelites have been freed from Egyptian captivity. They are wandering the wilderness. And then this is what we're told. I'm going to read the whole text. So they journeyed toward Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to go to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread, this manna from heaven. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The plain reading of the story is fairly straightforward. The people of God were so ungrateful at God and his deliverer Moses, so much so that they're complaining about all of God's continued provisions. They spoke against God. They spoke against Moses. They complained there's no food. There's no water. Our soul loathes this miracle stuff, this bread that comes down from heaven every day. They're so ungrateful that the Lord sent fiery serpents among them so that if they were bitten, the people died. Lots of people died. Kind of a no-nonsense judgment, right? People are complaining. God's like, here you go, fiery serpents. That'll take care of the complainers. Well, it didn't take very long, right, for the people to recognize that the fiery serpents were a judgment from God. It wasn't an accident. They connected the dots. So they rightly come to Moses. They repent. They plead for salvation. Save us from these things. So Moses goes to God and he prays. And God tells him to make a bronze serpent, to put it on a pole, set it in the midst of the people, so that if anyone was bitten by a serpent, they were to then go and look upon this bronze serpent in faith, and then they would live. Now, it's the text. 
the plain reading. It's simple enough. And yet, know that Jesus here, he's using the underlying imagery and the principles outlined in this story to answer Nicodemus's question. How can these things be? This is why he goes here. Fundamentally, Nick is wondering, how are we born again? How are we changed through the indwelling of the Spirit of God? How do we avoid perishing? How do we have eternal life? Is there a remedy for sin? These are all the things Nicodemus is grappling with. And so Jesus answers him, and he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so so that the people would be saved from the bite of the serpent, when they looked upon it in faith, salvation would come to whoever believes and the Son of Man who would also be lifted up. This is what Jesus is saying. Now we understand this reference that the Son of Man must be lifted up as Jesus speaking of his future crucifixion, which would yield a completed work of atonement. And that would have been impossible for Nicodemus to have understood in the moment that Jesus was talking about a crucifixion. But there are several points that Jesus is making using this story that Nicodemus, as a student of Scripture, would have undoubtedly understood. First, Nicodemus would have connected the dots that certain death that occurred from the bite of the serpent symbolically represented the inescapable wages of sin. He would have gotten that, that comparison. Every man and woman, you might say, is born into this world with a death sentence. Like it's the one destiny every man shares. Death is a matter of when, not if. In a profound sense, you would say that every human being has been bitten by a fiery serpent and death is the result. So Nicodemus would have connected that dot. The second thing is that Nicodemus would have understood the interesting comparison of the Son of Man being lifted up and the serpent being lifted up on a bronze pole. Now, though in the Old Testament, Satan is often described as that great serpent of old, going back to the Genesis 3 account. But in a broader sense, please understand, a serpent represented sin. It represented sin. Aside from this, because bronze was a metal made in fire, within Scripture, bronze was always a typology of judgment, being refined in the fire. In this story, the children of Israel could only be saved from death. How? When they looked to an item that reminded them of their sin and its judgment. Although the comparison, the full comparison, wouldn't be completely understood until Jesus' crucifixion. In drawing upon this parallel of the Son of Man being lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life, Jesus is saying, and Nicodemus would have understood this, that salvation from a certain death could only come when a person would look to Him and the judgment He would endure for sin. It's the connecting point he would have gotten. And finally, at a minimum, and referring back to this story in Numbers 21, Nicodemus would have understood, he would have recognized now the how behind his question or the how behind new birth. How are these things happening? 
Well, it would be in faith. Just as the Israelites were only saved when they looked upon the bronze serpent in faith. They didn't do anything. They looked and believed in faith according to the word of God. In much the same way, salvation, new birth, new life, would only occur through an act of faith in the Son of Man who was lifted up. You see, the point Jesus is making by going back to the story to Nicodemus, and he would have understood it, is that faith is the mechanism for these things, for salvation, not works. Jesus continues by now explaining the motivation behind the Son of Man being lifted up, which in context, don't forget, implies the judgment of God being poured out onto the Son of Man for the sins of mankind. So what would motivate God for His Son to be lifted up? Well, look at John 3.16. Jesus continues, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm sure you're familiar with this verse. It's probably the most famous of, of, of all Scripture verses. This week, in studying it afresh, I was really struck by just those first six words. For God so loved the world. Like, what an incredible statement. <laughs> what an incredible statement when you look around at the world. Like, it doesn't take very long for you and I to develop a bit of a disdain for the people who make up this speck of dust. To develop a disdain for people that hurt us, for people who betray us, for people who are wicked. Maybe I'm a little brazen because I've been serving on an HOA, but sometimes you rub shoulders with people and you just think, my goodness gracious, these people are terrible. How can people be like that? I'm absolutely amazed that God loves the people who make up this sinful, undeserving, this rebellious where people that are wicked, undeserving, people who are just terrible. Like, like, it really blows me away as I was just processing this statement anew, how incredible that sinners who hate God still remain the object of his love. Does that not blow you away? Like, just for God so loved the world. There's no caveat. The world. The good, the bad, the ugly, God loves the world. Now, I, I kind of, as, as a side point, this statement that God so loved the world, it, it would have left an unmistakable impression on Nicodemus. And here's why. This statement ran absolutely contrary to his religious understanding of God and the world. Like Nicodemus would have expected Jesus to say this, for God so loved Israel, not the world. And yet right from the beginning, Jesus is clear that the Son of Man was lifted up not just because he loved Israel, but he loved the Gentiles. 
God loved the world, not just the stock of Israel. And it's in the context of God's magnanimous, unwavering love for the world that he continues, that he gave his only begotten son. God's love for the sinful world stirred him beyond compassion. It stirred him beyond a feeling of pity. It moved God to act. And the presence of sin and our certain destruction, God, motivated by his love, was willing to do something about it. He was willing to give up something to save man from his sin. Namely, his only begotten son. In the Greek, this word we have translated, only begotten. It's monogenous. It implies, literally, one of a kind. The one of a kind son. The idea being conveyed is that God the Father gave God the Son. I should explain that within Hebrew culture, this phrase, son of fill-in-the-blank, meant that you were of the same nature as that thing. It was a common phrase. Common phrase within, within, within families. Ben, son of. The idea here, when Jesus uses the phrase, the son of God, is that he isn't saying that he's God's son, but rather that he's of the same nature of God. It's Jesus' way of claiming to be divine. You could reason that if you are the son of a giraffe, you're more than likely not an elephant. You're a giraffe. If you're the son of an elephant, it's more than likely you're not a monkey, but you're an elephant. You're of the same nature. To be the son of God means that you're of the same nature of God. You're God. And really, aside from the claim of deity... It's not an accident that Jesus intentionally uses this father-son analogy to anthropomorphically illustrate the nature of their relationship within the Godhead. You see, Jesus intentionally describes the interpersonal relationship within the triune nature of God as father and son. Why? Because while they're not father and son, It is the closest human terminology, the closest within the human language that would afford Jesus to be able to come close to describing the relationship. You see, in using the father-son imagery, (coughs) which is limited because God is neither a father nor a son, as we know these things, he uses this to communicate the depth of something, right? So don't, don't mistake it. God is letting us know that the depths of his love for the world, that his depths of love for you would be the akin of of a father giving his only begotten son. Now, though we know, and you should realize, that God is actually giving up something much deeper than you or I could ever imagine, something much deeper than even a father-son relationship. At faith's value, isn't it true that the idea of a father giving a son is a gnarly idea? The love that I have for Quincy and Theodore would absolutely 100%, I would never even think twice about laying down my life to save theirs, right? And if you're a father, you, you share that sentiment. 
I wouldn't think twice about giving my life to save theirs. But, but let me tell you this. There's not a single person in this room where I would give my son's lives to save. I don't love you that much. And I'm just being real. I love you. But not to the point that I'm going to sacrifice my two sons. My only begotten. The firstborn Quincy and the backup plan Theodore. Neither of them. Neither of them are going are gonna to be used. But so for God to place in this context of the father and son dynamic, to say, I love the world so much that I'm willing to give my son. That matters. That's meaningful. That's deep. So what would drive God to offer such a radical gift? Jesus continues by explaining that God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, know that God's love for you motivated him to give his only begotten son, Jesus, for one reason, that you should not perish but have everlasting life. Like what Jesus is describing here is a most amazing exchange. God offered his son to first rescue you from death, the snake bite, to save you from perishing. That was the first phase. But that's not all he sent his son to do, to give. You see, in place of death and judgment, the son was given that you could also have what? Everlasting life. That you should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sadly, the entire idea behind everlasting life ends up getting relegated to nothing more than a get out of, get out of hell free card or a golden ticket to the Willy Wonka factory in heaven. Everlasting life. Something I will have after I die, when I breathe my last, in eternity. And while there is truth, to that reality. I mean, let's be real. Heaven over hell is kind of a good selling point. You need to know there's so much more being articulated in these two words. First, Jesus uses this, this, he says, but have. You should not perish, but have. Understand that indicates a present possession. That you should not perish, which is a future thing, but have in the moment. You see, everlasting life isn't just a, a future promise, but it's an immediate result. The Greek adjective we have translated everlasting implies a life without beginning nor end. As such, we know that this is a life found in God alone. A life that exists whether I attain it or not whether I receive it or not. It exists in God. It's a life I enter into and then ride out for all of eternity. You see, the salvation Jesus is describing isn't just about escaping a future death, but enjoying His life today, presently. So let's get back to the whole idea. How, how do we receive everlasting life? How are we born again? How are we filled with the Spirit? How do we experience the kingdom of God? How are we saved from the death bite of, of sin, of the serpent? How do we not perish? How do we change? Well, the answer 
is that Jesus is the only mechanism for any of these things to occur being that you believe in him. That's what the text tells us. That you believe in him. For those who believe in him. Now please know the idea behind belief is much more than an intellectual concession. The idea actually describes a person in the Greek who's literally placed his entire weight upon something. It's, 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 it's salvation. It, it only takes place when you make a decision to place your entire weight upon Jesus. So much so that if Jesus were to fail, you're going to fall flat on your face. That's the idea. There's not another option. You place your full weight so that if he fails, you falter. Like believing in him is to place all of your confidence in him. It's a total reliance. It's to go all in so that nothing remains. Because this incredible offering of God is motivated by his love for the world. Should we be surprised that everlasting life is available for whoever believes in him. I love the way that King James translates whoever. It's a subtle difference. I just love it. Whosoever believes in him. I love that word, whosoever. Like, what a radical idea. The gift of God and the results of this belief in Jesus are available to anyone and everyone whosoever. It's very broad. And you know what it also tells us? That there are absolutely zero pre-qualifications required. There's no term sheet, pre-approval process, application. It tells us that this love of God, a love of God that would, that would demand he give his only begotten son that you should not perish but have everlasting life, that that love is unconditional. It's not conditioned upon you in any way. You see, this is what's amazing about it, and I, I hope you know it this morning, that you don't have to be good enough, which you aren't. I mean, how could you ever be good enough for such an offering of a father giving his son? You see, you don't have to be good enough, which you aren't. You don't have to measure up, which you can't. You don't have to be deserving of, which is impossible nor can you even earn it. So I would suggest you quit trying. For that matter, you don't have to be religious or educated. You don't have to be moral to believe or have your act together. You don't have to pay your dues, secure your spot beforehand. Friend, whosoever is so broad, it actually includes you, even in light of whatever your deal happens to be. Verse 17, Jesus continues, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light came, has come into the world, and that men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, 
that they have been done in God. The entire mission of Jesus. If you want to know why Jesus came, like what his mission is, let's summarize it in verse 17. We get so obsessed with John 3.16, we forget that John 17 might be just as important. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So that's what Jesus didn't come to do, to condemn the world. But what did he come to do? That the world through him might be saved. I hope you know that Jesus did not come to judge. Jesus came to save. That the world through him might be saved. Jesus came to specifically provide you a way to receive everlasting life, a life sin separated you from. Jesus came to accomplish a work whereby you might have a way to be saved and reconciled with a God who so deeply loves you with such a depth of love you could never understand. And yet, as Jesus wraps up his conversation with Nicodemus, he makes two points we cannot overlook. First, because of the nature of his mission, you need to know that there are serious consequences for those who would reject him. Jesus says, he who does not believe, in context of what? Believe in him, the son lifted up for sin. He who does not believe is condemned already. If in light of God's unconditional love, demonstrated in the fact that he gave his only begotten son, you still refuse to believe? Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, who do you really have to blame on judgment day? Can you really blame God who gave his only begotten son? Could you blame the son who willingly surrendered to the cross? Like, who can you blame? especially when it's unconditional and there's no strings attached and you don't have to measure up. You see, the only person you have to blame if you refuse Jesus is yourself. There's no one else. You're condemned already. Secondly, Jesus is clear that those who do reject him, they do so why? It's not ignorance. It's not lack of knowledge. It's the fact that men love sin. Jesus says the ultimate condemnation of man boils down to what? He says it, that men love darkness rather than the light. You know, people don't reject Jesus on accident. They do so with intention because they understand the implication. Jesus adds that everyone who practices evil hates the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. No man or woman will ever be able to claim that they lacked an opportunity to receive Jesus or the ability to do so. In light of all that he's done for you, your condemnation will be totally based on your refusal to believe in Jesus. You know, as radical an idea as it is, the truth is that Jesus never sends a person to hell who hasn't already chosen hell as his destination. Judgment ends up being the concession of your decision to reject Jesus, to reject his love, to reject the sacrifice he made to save you from sin. To spend a whole life rejecting Jesus and then die and say, I want to spend eternity with you, that would be hell. See, it's just the honoring of one's choice. Apart from Jesus, you're already condemned. If you resist his offer to save, 
you'll simply remain in the state that you are. Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this, this, this text, conversation's over. Nicodemus doesn't say anything, right? Nothing else is recorded by Nicodemus. What's interesting, though, is that this is not the end of Nicodemus' story. The next place you'll see Nicodemus, well, there's a, a flyby in, like, I think, chapter 7. But where you see his activity is in John chapter 19. See, Nicodemus, influential, wealthy, powerful, connected. Nicodemus, very spiritually interested. He comes to Jesus at night. He has this conversation. He asks the right questions. He hears what Jesus says. And then he leaves. He still remains inquisitive. He's still interested. He's still seeking. But he had a lot to lose by becoming a follower of Jesus. But there was one moment that changed Nicodemus' life forever. One moment where he goes from being a seeker to a saint. Where he goes to being a follower of Jesus. And it's at the crucifixion. Jesus, hanging on the cross, died for the sins of the world, was lifted up, the Son of Man, right? And then we're told a, a man, a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pontius Pilate, and he, and he sought permission to remove the body, and to take the body, to prep the body, and to lay it in his tomb, a garden tomb. Pilate gives Joseph permission gives a concession to the religious establishment that they could put guards out so no one would tamper with the body. And we're told that Joseph of Arimathea goes to retrieve the body of Jesus with a friend. You want to take a guess? Nicodemus. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea lower Jesus' body from that tree. And they lay it in a tomb. And I cannot help but think he knew what it meant for the Son of Man to be lifted up. That this entire conversation became clear. If, as we postulated last Sunday, Nicodemus is indeed the brother of the historian Josephus, then you should know that as a result of following Jesus, at least that Nicodemus lost everything. Lost everything. Was stripped of his position in the Sanhedrin. Was kicked out of being a Pharisee. His wealth was taken, rejected by his family, became an outcast. But he was a follower of Jesus. And guess what? Nicodemus didn't perish, but he had everlasting life. That we will meet Nicodemus one day. He saw the Son of Man lifted up and he believed. So if any of these truths, if any of these things about Jesus strike a chord and you're like, I have not gone all in, I have not placed my full weight, which is what's required, then just in the quietness of your own soul, I'd ask that you pray this prayer. So if you'd bow your head and close your eyes.